Hello, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I'm your host, Bob Sadowake. In 1992, my guest today, Jim Obergefell, met the love of his life, John Arthur, and fell in love with him while living in Cincinnati, Ohio. In the early 90s, the gay community all over America lived in secrecy because in that not-too-distant past, LGBTQ people could be arrested, jailed, and of course fired from their jobs for who they were and who they loved. There were no protections under the law for LGBTQ people to be treated equally, but despite the hurdles the community faced, there were those that continued to live their lives with those they loved, and one of those couples was Jim and John. Jim Obergefell is the named plaintiff in the Supreme Court case Obergefell v. Hodges that was decided on June 26, 2015, legalizing same-sex marriage throughout the United States. And he co-authored the book Love Wins, The Lovers and Lawyers Who Fought the Landmark Case for Marriage Equality. There is still so much instability facing the future of the LGBTQ community as it pertains to legal protections in employment, housing, health care, jurisprudence, and of course, marriage. And today I'm happy to explore all of these subjects and Jim's book on the show. Jim Obergefell, welcome to Breaking Protocol. Thanks, Bob. I'm thrilled to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Well, I'm happy that you accepted the invitation. There's a lot going on in the world today. We are 13 days from the election, and I certainly want to talk about that and the new initiatives that you're pursuing. But before we get there, I want to give my listeners some background, a little bit of history about yourself, as personal as you're willing to divulge. You know, back in the day when you met John, the service industry actually was refusing to serve gay men due to the fear of the AIDS epidemic. And last week, the State Board of Social Work Examiners voted unanimously in the state of Texas to change a section of its code of conduct following a recommendation by the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, to remove protections for sexual orientation, gender identity, and disability. This allows for direct discrimination against the LGBTQ community. Are you concerned that we are headed down a path that this is the direction that our country is reversing to? And what do you recommend we as a community do about it? I am absolutely concerned about that. I mean, from the moment Obergefell v. Hodges was decided, there have been attempts to say, well, you might have the ability to marry, but that doesn't mean we're going to allow you to actually experience marriage equality. I mean, all I have to do is mention Kim Davis. And that's been an ongoing issue for marriage, but it's now become the strategy that opponents of LGBTQ plus equality are using across all aspects of, of our ability to live. You know, Texas, I this stuns me that, number one, any licensed social worker would demand the right to refuse service to any person. And for the state to say, you know what, that's okay, we'll remove those restrictions so that you can, if you so choose, discriminate against members of the LGBTQ plus community or those with disabilities. I find that disgusting. 
reprehensible and just really an affront to what it means to be a social worker. There are so many other ways that, that this is happening. I mean, on November 4th, the Supreme Court will hear arguments in Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia. And this is another case where adoption and foster providers in the city of Philadelphia are demanding the right to deny service to the LGBTQ plus community, to deny us taxpayer funded services. And I find that especially egregious because those services, those organizations exist to help children find loving homes. And yet here they're demanding the, the, the ability to off the top refuse a segment of society, the ability to become foster or adoptive parents. That's damaging to those children. That's discriminatory against those potential parents. And I also have to wonder how they're treating the LGBTQ plus kids who are in the child welfare system. So absolutely, this, this whole demand to refuse service to the LGBTQ plus community is the latest, really the latest goal, the latest focus of opponents of LGBTQ plus community, because they, they have found that they've lost when we go to the courts. They lost marriage. They lost in Bostock for employment discrimination. So they are they're doing everything they can to just say, you don't really matter. You aren't equal to us. You aren't truly part of we the people. And I think we're going to see those efforts continuing. You know, it's interesting. In your book, Love Wins, you refer to a statement made by a Republican governor the former Republican governor of Wisconsin, Governor Lee S. Dreyfus. Many years ago, he stated, and I'm quoting here, it is a fundamental tenet of the Republican Party that government ought not to intrude in the private lives of individuals where no state purpose is served. And there is nothing more private or intimate than who you live with and who you love. What the hell happened to the Republican Party? Great question, Bob. I have no idea. Other than they went down this, this path of feeling superior to people who are different from the majority. And this, this need to say, we, we want we want not only to practice our religion at home and in our house of worship, but we want our religion or the way we interpret our religion to determine other people's rights, other people's values. But I have to ask that same exact thing, Bob, what in the hell happened? Because that, that goes completely against what that former governor said, as well as what so many Republicans say that they are all about personal freedoms. I can't think of, many things that are much more personal than the person you love and the person you choose to spend your life with. You know, looking back during the 80s, specifically, gay men were not only medically impacted by the AIDS virus, but we were psychologically impacted. And we, in my view, we continue to be psychologically impacted even today. But the younger generation of the LGBTQ community, in my view, seems somewhat cavalier about HIV. And 
have we as a community done an effective job truly educating about the history of our movement and that and, and specifically around what HIV did to this community? You know, that's a tough one to, to answer with any sort of certainty, Bob, because do I think those of us who are older, our community in general, do I think we've we've done a lot of things to educate others about our experiences growing up, what world, the world was like for us years ago? I think we have. I think we've also been pretty vocal about the horrors of the AIDS crisis and what that felt like and the the absolute fear that we we lived every single day i think we have done that but i think it's with with anything other people can explain things and and share those stories but younger generations and this is not i'm not denigrating them in what's in any way shape or form but it's hard for a lot of people to truly take that to heart and to have that become real if they haven't actually lived it. So I can't I can't really say either side has, is, is in the wrong here. I think it's just human nature. How much do you think the HIV crisis from the 80s impacted the movement toward equality? Oh, I firmly believe that the AIDS crisis was, in essence, kind of the one of the sparks that lit the fire for our movement for equality. You know, I think one of the one of the things that came out of that, which I'm thankful did, was the fact that prior to the AIDS crisis, I don't know that you would have necessarily called it the the LGBTQ plus, and I'll focus on the L and the G community because, in a lot of ways, before the AIDS crisis, gay men and lesbians were, were their own communities. They they didn't necessarily interact a whole lot. But the women, the lesbian women who, who stood up and said, we see all of these men dying of AIDS and our government isn't doing anything. Their families are turning their backs on them. The people that they might have relied on to help care for them are also dying. They stood up and took care of so many gay men across this nation. And I think that was that was such such a, an important thing because I think that started really helping us come together as a community. So the AIDS crisis, absolutely, between that and the pushback to the Reagan administration and being vocal about how we were being ignored and the government was acting as if we didn't exist and they were doing nothing those things really became a motivating part of, of our fight for equality. So yes, I absolutely think the AIDS crisis played a huge part in moving us forward. You know, it's interesting. You write about a human rights ordinance that was passed by the local city council in Cincinnati. And what a victory that was for that community and especially if you consider the era in which that human rights ordinance was passed. But then you also talk about a gentleman by the name of Scott Knox, who worked diligently because the government decided that that ordinance should be put to a referendum 
a referendum vote by the people. And at the end of the day, the referendum overturned the protection. And Scott Knox made a comment, and he said, my city really hates my guts. Mm -hmm. Take us back to that time when that happened. And do you feel that these types of referendums come from a place of hate? Short answer, yes. That referendum clearly was based <laughs> in hatred of the LGBTQ plus community. Now, just to explain that a little bit more for your listeners, in the early 1990s, the city of Cincinnati, the city council passed a human rights ordinance that included the LGBTQ plus community. There was backlash and there was an effort launched to put on the ballot an issue that would overturn that, that non-discrimination policy and not only overturn it, but also amend the, the charter of the city of Cincinnati to say that no laws could ever be passed to protect the LGBTQ plus community. And that wow. passed in 1994. So Scott's comment about my city hates me, that's exactly how we all felt in the city of Cincinnati. Now, Cincinnati had long been known as a very conservative place. You know, it's, it's the city where the director of the Contemporary Arts Center was brought up on obscenity charges for holding a Maplethorpe exhibition. Luckily, he was acquitted, but it was a city where dentists refused to serve gay men out of, because of HIV and AIDS. It was a city where police officers would do stings in public parks and arrest gay men. So it hurt. It was this clear thing that, yes, they hate us, but it was also somewhat in character for the city. Now, I have to say, 10 years later in 2004, that was the year the state of Ohio passed their version of the Defense of Marriage Act. So we now had the state saying you cannot get married and we won't recognize same-sex marriage. But in that same election, the people of Cincinnati voted again and repealed that charter amendment. So during my time in Cincinnati, you know, I was there for 32 years. I saw Cincinnati go from this very conservative, very anti-LGBTQ plus city to one of the most LGBTQ plus welcoming places in the nation. I mean, there's a street in a Cincinnati neighborhood named after John and me. Wow, that's fantastic. I've seen amazing things happen in that city. And it was also, other than Washington, D.C., it was the first city to ban conversion therapy. So a lot of good things have happened in Cincinnati. Well, speaking of lawsuits, we're going to talk a little bit about why you wrote this book and how you ended up in the epicenter of a Supreme Court case. And in reading the book, I came to the understanding in some ways that this entire lawsuit was rather organic in nature. It, it really didn't start out like, oh, I'm going to sue the government. It really was a result of the fact that your husband had been diagnosed with ALS and he was dying. And though you, though you were legally married, because you had been legally married in the state of Maryland, Ohio would not recognize your marriage, which meant that when John ultimately passed away, they would not recognize you as his surviving spouse. You didn't reach out 
and seek legal counsel around all this. Somebody reached out to you and tell us how a little history, how that all came about and ultimately the resolution. Yeah, it was very organic. You know, if you had asked me any time prior to June 30th, round in there, June 30th of 2013, if I if I would ever sue the state of Ohio, if I ever thought I would end up in the Supreme Court, the answer would have been a, been a resounding, are you kidding? No way yeah. would that ever happen. But John and I loved each other. And early on, within the first year and a half of our um, relationship, we talked marriage and we wanted to get married. But we also agreed that for us, it couldn't just be symbolic. We would only do it when the government would recognize it, would say our marriage, our relationship existed. And we thought that was forever beyond our grasp, living in Ohio. But then on June 26, 2013, I was standing next to his bed because at that point he was completely bedridden due to ALS and I was his full-time caregiver. I was standing next to his bed as the news came out that the Supreme Court in United States versus Windsor struck down the Defense of Marriage Act. And I spur of the moment proposed. I leaned over, hugged him and kissed him and said, let's get married. And luckily he said, yes. But you know, here we were in Cincinnati and in a perfect world in a world where we actually were part of we the people and where we enjoyed equal justice under law, I could have put him in his wheelchair and taken him six blocks to the county courthouse for a marriage license. But no, we couldn't do that because of Ohio's mini DOMA. So we had to figure out where to go to get married and how to take John there. So we picked Maryland because it was because it was the only place where both people were not required to appear in person to apply for the marriage license. I could go in advance, get the marriage license, and then we could figure out how to get the two of us there and right back home so that it limited disruption to John, the time he would be away from home, the pain he would go through. So really our only option to do that was a chartered medical jet because we couldn't fly commercially. I wasn't willing to put him in an ambulance for hundreds of miles. And the only good thing I'll ever say about Facebook, I went to Facebook and said, Hey, does anyone have a contact with a medical chartered jet company or a pilot? We were just looking for a way to mitigate the cost and we could afford it, but thought, well, maybe connections will help. And our family and friends said, Nope, you guys deserve to get married. We want to help. So let us help. And our family and friends covered the entire $14,000 cost of the jet. So John's That's aunt a beautiful Paulette, thing. It, it is. We, we were so incredibly lucky. And John's Aunt Paulette, years before she told us, you guys, in my opinion, represent marriage better than any other couple I know. So if you ever get the chance to get married, I want to do it. So Aunt Paulette went to the internet and clicked the ordain me button. So after I proposed to John, I called her and said, hey, does that offer still stand? And she said, of course, you tell me when and where. So we knew how we were going. We knew who was going to officiate. And then a friend who was on the board, the editorial board at the Cincinnati Inquirer, found out we were doing this. And she had been trying to push the paper to come out in support of marriage equality. So she asked if we'd be willing to have her write a story. And we said, okay. So on... July 22nd, 2013, John and I flew to Baltimore, Washington International Airport, where we landed in the airplane with his was Aunt Paulette. We parked on the tarmac, 
And we were joined by a videographer, photographer from the Cincinnati Enquirer. And we got to do what we'd wanted to do for so many years, say, I do, I thee wed. And that was all we wanted. We wanted to live out John's remaining days as husband and husband, because finally, at least the federal government, thanks to the Windsor decision, would recognize our marriage. We flew home and that was all we thought about doing, just getting married. Well, that story came out online on Saturday and friends were at a party where they ran into a friend of theirs who's a civil rights attorney. And our story came up in conversation. And Al Gerhardstein, the civil rights attorney, asked if they thought we'd be willing to talk to him, to meet with him. Our friends got in touch, John and I talked about it and said, well, we don't know what he wants to talk about, but okay. So five days after we got married, he came to our home and he pulled out a blank Ohio death certificate. And he said, do you guys get it? Do you understand that when John dies, his last official record as a person will be wrong? Ohio will say he's unmarried. And Jim, your name won't be there as his surviving spouse. Broke our hearts. And I think more importantly, made us angry. So when Al asked if we wanted to do something about it, John and I discussed it and said, we do. So we filed suit in federal district court eight days after we got married. And then 11 days after we got married, I was in federal district court for the hearing on our case. Isn't it amazing how a simple conversation at a cocktail party between two individuals that you probably didn't even know, certainly you didn't know Al Gerhardstein, had never heard of him, I'm assuming. And this man shows up at your house and he's like, hey, I want to represent you. I, wa- I want you to do this. It had to have been, that just had to have been an extraordinary sense of validation that this man comes to your home and says, not only are you at risk at being discriminated against once again, but I have a plan to help you through this. I do have to ask, in the book, you talk so much about Aunt Paulette. You really give a clear, you give a very clear image of who Aunt Paulette is. And I have to say, I didn't sneak ahead and look at your photographs like I normally do. Usually when I'm reading a book, that's the first thing I do is I go look at people's pictures. Then I go back and read the book. But I didn't do that. And I have to say, your description of Aunt Paulette was so spot on that when I saw a picture of her, I was like, yeah, that's Paulette. Tell me a little about her. And are you still very close to her to this day? Aunt Paulette is amazing. And, you know, I'll start that with really just kind of why she was so important to John. You know, growing up, John and his father were never close for various reasons. John always felt like in his dad's opinion that John was a failure, that John was not the son that his father deserved. So there there was not a close relationship there. But Aunt Paulette, who is his father's sister, she was that, that aunt who was just fun, who loved John and his brother without question, unreservedly, just the stories I would hear about their, the fun times they would have with her, you know, as she was driving, um, after picking them up after she left work and she was just so tired of wearing pantyhose, she was stripping off her pantyhose in the car because that was just <laughs> too much. She couldn't take it anymore. Um, she's just this incredibly loving, warm person who wants the best for every person she knows. And, 
just thoughtful, smart, just delightful. And, you know, I also have to say, in case I slip and say this, her nickname is Aunt Tootie. So Aunt Tootie was just, and she still is just this amazing person. And she was so important to John because he knew he could go to her at any point. And she would hug him and love him and tell him, you're great. I love you. You have nothing to worry about. So she was just that, that aunt. And he oftentimes kind of referred to her as his aunt Mame. That was just how he, how he thought of her. And I still am very close to aunt Paulette and her husband, Mike. She lives about an hour and a half from me. So I will visit her down in Adams County, Ohio. She comes up to visit me. We talk regularly and she's just, just a delightful person. And I love to hear that you, you felt like um, the description was so good because I also have to say, you know, writing this book with Debbie Senzipper was great because not only is she a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist, we also used to be somewhat related. And because of that, I think that image of Aunt Paulette is even richer, even more accurate because Debbie is the ex-wife of Paulette's son. It's a small world. It is. So she knows the family. She knows Paulette. So I think that that helped create an even more vibrant, realistic depiction of, of Aunt Tootie in the book. You know, one of my biggest concerns in the recognition of same-sex marriage uh, presented by those who oppose it is the right of those whose religions do not align with the institution and that they somehow would be required to sacrifice the religious teaching if same-sex couples' marriages were recognized equally by the government. And that argument is the argument that they still hold on to today. Are we at risk of equal marriage, same-sex marriage being overturned? I will go with what a lot of people much smarter than I am, attorneys, Supreme Court experts, say— they don't believe we're at incredible risk of the of marriage equality itself being overturned. And a big reason is the Supreme Court traditionally and typically is a stronger believer in precedent, regardless of the individual justices' opinions or or which side they were on in a particular case. You know, there are issues there because Justices Thomas and Alito have certainly come out and repeated their same arguments from the decision. They just recently reiterated those, their their antipathy towards marriage equality. But typically precedent carries incredible weight. And also the Supreme Court is, is hesitant to take away rights that have been previously been granted to a segment of society. So, a lot of them, a lot of the experts, much smarter than I am, say, don't worry so much about marriage equality itself. Don't worry so much about Obergefell v. Hodges being overturned. What we do risk, and what we've we've been seeing since June 26, 2015, is these attempts to refuse us true marriage equality. Kim Davis. Um, bakers, photographers, all of these people who are saying, I refuse to work with you, I refuse to serve you because of my religious beliefs. They are, these attempts are really 
doing everything in, they can to create what Ruth Bader Ginsburg called skim milk marriages. So while I don't think the right to marry will be completely overturned, we won't have marriage equality because of these efforts. And marriage equality means we should be able to marry and have those marriages and our families treated exactly like every other family should bring with it all of those attendant rights, responsibilities, and protections. They will keep chipping away at that. Do you think there's a difference between a baker who refuses to bake a cake and an elected public servant who refuses to issue a marriage license? Well, an elected public servant took an oath to serve the people. And regardless of your personal opinions, the people includes everyone. And if you're not willing to serve everyone in your capacity as that elected official, then you should not be in that office. You should not run for office if you can't serve every person, every taxpayer who's paying your salary. So that to me is an issue. I also have an issue with people who run businesses open to the public. And my issue there is they are claiming that our marriages prevent them from practicing their religion. Well, religious liberty is about you having the ability, the right to practice your religion as you so choose in your home is not the right for for anyone to say a religion, whatever that religion is, or my religion, my, my interpretation of my religion takes precedence over other people's civil and human rights. So I struggle mightily with people who have businesses open to the public saying, I can't serve you because you happen to be LGBTQ+, because where does that end? Why can't someone also say, well, I refuse to serve this couple because I don't believe in interracial marriage, or I refuse to serve this person because they're Muslim. And I, my religious beliefs, I don't think Muslim people deserve the same things that I have. So it's a slippery slope. You know, it's interesting. You write in the book about the decision of the Sixth Circuit. And one of the passages that provided me some comfort in direct correlation to this particular subject matter was the dissent opinion of Judge Daltrey of the Sixth Circuit. And to me, the dissent was not only entirely logical, of course, I'm not an attorney, but clearly in line with what I know to be the democratic process. And that is, that dissent was in favor of your lawsuit based on the democratic process. How can simplistic interpretations of the law be viewed so differently among legal scholars based on the experiences that you've had in the circuit courts and the Supreme Court? I wish I had an answer for that, Bob, but I don't. You know, from the start, we kept getting the argument that, of course, this state amendment banning same-sex marriage is okay. It's constitutional because the people voted on it. A majority of the voters voted for it. And Al, our attorney, I'll never forget how we responded to that the first time it came up in our first hearing in federal district court. 
He said the surest way to abridge the rights of a minority is to allow the majority to vote on them. And that dissent that you, that you mentioned by Judge Martha Daughtry, she took the other two judges on that three judge panel to task because their opinion was that we did not belong in a court of law. We were wasting the court's time because that wasn't where we should be. We should be out on the streets fighting to change hearts and minds. And I don't understand that argument because the framers of our constitution created a Supreme Court. The court system exists to protect our civil rights. And if we can't go to the Supreme Court to say our state, our government is abridging our civil rights, then that's in essence saying the, the constitution is pointless. It doesn't, it, so we did what, we followed the path that our nation's founders set out for us when our rights were being abridged. And I find it, I find it hard to understand that any judge or justice could say that taking those steps and utilizing the court system is the wrong thing for us to do, when clearly that's why it exists. You know, Jim, you share so much in the book about John and what he went through with ALS and how it impacted not just John's life, but clearly your life as well. You know, where did you find the strength to fight for marriage equality when you had every reason, every reason to say, look, you know, I got a lot on my plate here. You know, someone else needs to stand up and do this. Someone else needs to take this on. No one would have blamed you for that. But instead, you know, you persevered. Tell us how you found that drive and that motivation while you were dealing with such a personal medical health issue with your husband at the time? You know, there, there are, I mean, multiple ways I can answer that, but it really comes down to this. John and I made promises to one another to love, honor, and protect each other. And we had made those promises throughout our almost 21 years together. And then we had the opportunity to, to make those promises as part of a lawful marriage ceremony. And we took those promises seriously. And, you know, when Al first asked if we wanted to, to file suit, John and I were in agreement. We wanted to do it. And John was very clear. He said, Jim, yes, it's the right thing for us to do. But remember, this is all on your shoulders because I can't do anything. So John wanted us to do it. But John also made it okay for me to take some time away from him because he knew it was the right thing to do. He knew it was important. So it was easy for me to do that because it was for us. It was for our relationship. It was living up to my promises. And I would make the same decision again. You know, even now knowing that he would die three months to the day after our first win in federal district court, I would do it again because if I can't fight for the person who I loved more than anyone, more than anything in the world, what can I fight for? But it was also that realization that here we were in this situation where the harm that was being done to us, that abstract knowledge, that abstract understanding of the Defense of Marriage Act at the state level became real with that piece of paper, that death certificate. And honestly, how could we not fight? 
because it wasn't just us. It was so many other people. And I also have to say, you know, after John died, people, I got this question a lot. How are you doing this? How are you talking about him every day? Isn't this just incredibly difficult, you know, dealing with your grief, but then always talking about John? And I, and I always said, no, actually, I get to talk about him every day. I get to fight for him every day. I can't think of a better way to use my time. I can't think of a better way to honor him, to live up to my promises and work through my grief. So it was easy because it was the right thing to do. And it was how I was living up to my promises to John. Well, that's a beautiful affirmation, Jim. And on behalf of all the Americans that pursue equality and justice, just allow me to say thank you. You know, I want to move on to some initiatives that you're currently involved with, and most recently being the Family Equality Council. How did you become involved with the Family Equality Council? And give us a little bit of background on what they do and why that's important for you. Yep. So Family Equality, they used to be Family Equality Council, but over the past few years, they've dropped the word council. Um, It's the only national organization dedicated to helping create legal and lived equality for LGBTQ plus families. Because fact is, for those of us in our community who want to form or expand families, we face issues throughout our country, whether it's discriminatory laws, policies, or just attitudes in in those systems that are supposed to help us form our families or those systems that are supposed to help children find loving families. So through advocacy, lobbying, things like the Every Child Deserves a Family Act, we are very much involved in helping move that through Congress that would um, ban discrimination in, in family formation. It would do so many other things to help protect our ability to create and expand our families. We're involved in helping fight for the Equality Act. We provide training for for, um, child welfare service providers so that they can make sure that they're offering culturally sensitive services to our community. So there's a lot that family equality is doing. And I made the connection with them because I realized after, you know, six and a half years of being on my own and doing all of these things, which it's been amazing, but I realized I needed to or wanted to focus a bit more, focus my energies. And that meant I wanted to be working with an organization as opposed to just on my own. So I found a position that interested me online with family equality, and I absolutely support and appreciate their mission. And that's how it all worked out. So I'm thrilled. To, I'm thrilled to be working with them. They're, they're a really important organization. So, if listeners are listening to you talk about family equality and they want more information, they want to get involved. How would they go about doing that? That's great. Just go to www.familyequality.org. Um, that's the easiest way. You can learn what we do. You can volunteer. You can find about the find out about the services we offer to LGBTQ plus families you can donate. So that's by far the easiest way, familyequality.org. Before we wrap up, I want to move on to a little bit of a lighter subject matter. One of the, probably my most favorite favorite subject matters, if you will. 
and that's wine. I love <laughs> to drink wine. And Jim Obergefell has gotten himself involved with a winery. Now, do you have a background in wine? Do you have a, are you a sommelier or do you, did you study wine? How did, how did this all come about? So my background in wine consists solely of drinking and enjoying wine. That's it. So in 2015, I got a phone call out of the blue from Matt, who's now my business partner. He, his ex-wife and I had a friend in common. So he had a way to track me down and to reach out. Now, Matt's been in the food and wine business for a couple decades, and he owned a winery in South Africa, and he did import into the U.S. And his favorite aunt, his aunt Marilyn, back in the 70s, worked for NBC in New York. And my short way of putting it is after one too many instances of male colleagues saying, hey, Marilyn, get me a cup of coffee. Marilyn decided, get your own damn cup of coffee. And she filed and led the first major class action lawsuit for gender equality, opportunity, and pay equality in the workplace. And she won. So she had passed away. She was also a lesbian. So there was that connection. And Matt decided he wanted to do a wine to honor her. And one of his friends said, Matt, think bigger than one wine. Then he realized our story hit the news and he realized we had this connection. So he reached out. We had dinner in New York over many bottles of wine and decided <laughs> to launch a business. And we're not a winery. We're a wine label. So we partner with wineries and winemakers to make wine for us. But it's called Equality Vines. And every wine we release is tied to an organization fighting for equality. So when we sell a bottle of that wine, we donate to that organization. We have wines that support LGBTQ rights, our loved ones, Cuvée, the Decision Pinot Noir, Stonewall's Infidel. We have wines that support women's rights, um, the 19th Amendment line of wines, which supports the League of Women Voters, Rosé the Riveter. And we also just released our first wine that supports immigrants' rights um, called The Migrant. So all of our wines, they're premium wines, limited release. And they're like I say, they're all tied to organizations fighting for good. And we're also working on a line of wines that will support racial equality. And where do I buy these wines? How do I get my hands on them? Easiest way is equalityvines.com. And we can ship to most states. You know, there are certain states based on their state laws. We can't. Um, we have a little bit of retail exposure um, in San, around San Francisco. We're in 45 Whole Foods a couple other shops. We have retail in Chicago, Washington, D.C., New York. But we're also working to expand our, our retail and our distribution. But equalityvines.com, by far the easiest way. Well, Jim, thank you so much for being with us today, for talking us through your experiences with marriage equality, uh, highlighting the initiatives that you're currently involved in. Clearly, you're not letting the grass grow under your feet. I enjoyed it, Bob. Thanks again for having me on. And ladies and gentlemen, the book is Love Wins, The Lovers and Lawyers Who Fought the Landmark Case for Marriage Equality. It is available wherever you buy your books. Thank you again for listening. If you haven't had an opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy, it is available at your favorite online retailer or can be downloaded to your Kindle tablet or smartphone. Have a wonderful day 
and many blessings.